0: This might be an all-time low, but while I haven't seen The Lion King, I did see some of the spin-offs.
1: So you saw Lion King 2, Simba's Pride.
2: <laughs> he saw Simba's Pride. I think,
0: I think I did. I think I did. Oh, man. Soundtrack wasn't banging, let me tell you. <laughs> Welcome to the B-Side.
1: This is the Music Snobs on Film. I am your host and lead voice, Arthur, and I'm joined as always by my co-hosts, Isaac and Jahan. And this is a groundbreaking episode for us. This is the last show of our first seasonal format, uh, episode number eight for both the Music Snobs podcast and Snobs on Film. Um, congratulations. We made it. I mean, we made it. Like, We didn't kill each other. Came close. Uh, Well, we're all here. Came close. We're we're all here. It got a little. Do we still love each
2: other? Do we still love each other? John Um, is uh, John is suspiciously quiet right now. uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) So yes, we we brought you eight shows in eight months, January through the season finale that we're recording right now uh, for August 2019, Uh, and the music snobs will be back in 2020. Uh, along with snobs on film, Uh, but there may be some extras that we drop along the way, so we're not going to be completely ghosts while we plan the uh, season number two. So today we want to focus on the perfect or imperfect marriage between music and movies. There have been several occasions uh, on the music snobs where we've talked about music, but we haven't talked about um, the film where that music appeared in, and conversely, We've done snobs on film episodes where we've talked about films, but not the music. Uh, Most recently, we spent over an hour talking about Do the Right Thing for the 30th anniversary, but we actually did not mention the soundtrack. So we thought that it would be a good idea to combine forces and focus on soundtracks themselves uh, and the symbiotic relationship between music and film uh, that probably began out of necessity where music was an accompaniment to silent films in the early 20th century before audio dialogue could be recorded and and tracked to the film. So when film technology evolved, so did the musical accompaniment, and uh, movie studios began to hire composers to write music uh, or scores specifically for that film. This music was then packaged into albums and commercially released, um, creating soundtracks. That we know now. Uh, interesting note, the first soundtrack. Anybody know? Take a guess. No idea. 1938, Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs yeah. was, the, was the first soundtrack for sale. So fast forward, what, 60-ish years? And soundtracks are still going strong. Um, sometimes they herald a film's release. Uh, most recently, we have uh, the, the live-action remake of Disney's The Lion King featuring Beyonce's spirit. Uh, And this is a song for Beyonce that did not appear in the 1995 animated original. So it's clearly designed uh, to be artist driven. And I would think, hopefully, to draw audiences to the theater. So I personally wanna know, Isaac, I'm gonna throw this to you, Beyonce. You're
2: throwing Beyonce to me, okay.
1: I am, (laughs) get ready, don't. (laughs) (laughs) What was you about to say? (laughs) Is this is this gonna is this gonna entice you to go and see the live action Lion King? That you know that she's gonna be doing this new song.
2: Um, no, but I think the Lion King I think is is a good example of what we're talking about here. I mean, just to back up a little bit, when we were actually talking about you know how we wanted to wrap up this season and the fact that we wanted to combine you know both shows and do this you know on a grand scale. It you know we threw around we threw around a lot of ideas and I think that this one when it came up it almost seemed very obvious after the fact you know hindsight right. is twenty twenty this relationship between movies and music is about as intimate and as natural a relationship I've ever seen between two genres um, two different you know two, artis- two yeah two mediums two different artistic mediums so the Lion King I think is a great example because the original um, Lion King film. Um, that Elton John song, "Circle of Life." I mean, come on, you know that's basically ingrained in our psyche now. And maybe mm-hmm. even for people who've only seen the film once or never even seen the film, yeah. um, that song is, is 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 you know part of is is a cultural um, cornerstone now. Um, and when you said okay there's going to be new material you know recorded for this next Lion King movie which from what I understand is a you know, almost a scene by scene replication of the first film um, but just in you know not even live action it's uh, you know digitized um, I think the entire movie is digital um, it doesn't entice me only because I, I still am so strongly connected to those original songs for the original film mm-hmm. and I think that speaks to that relationship more than anything else I almost feel like you really can't do it better than that for that film. Um, So saying that you're going to record a new song for this movie, I feel like, why? You know what I'm saying? It's like you you, you perfected it the first time. What's the point? Um, So to answer your question, nah. But that's just me. Maybe some other people are more enticing. Maybe a younger generation who didn't see um, the... Well... (laughs) I would say, even for younger kids, it's almost like Michael Jackson and Michael Jordan, you... you. I mean, I think if you're of a certain
1: age and you have children, you've seen The Lion King.
2: Yeah, you you, you, know, you know The, the Lion story, King. Right. You know, I don't care what age you are. You know The Lion King, you know Circle of Life. So I can't imagine anybody, you know, being enticed to go see it just because Beyonce, even even as big as Beyonce is, um, mm-hmm. that she's going to record a new song for it.
0: You know, I don't think I've ever seen The Lion King. <laughs> what? how is that possible i've seen the play twice I'm and the play the musical i've seen the musical twice i think i've seen it in uh, la and in london but yeah i don't, uh, I, don't I think you know much. what
2: that that i know that sounds crazy you know what you know it doesn't sound crazy but, that's, yeah it that's doesn't you. sound crazy to me if you know if if, <laughs> if you don't know jahan if you don't know him personally all you need to know about him to sum him up is that he's seen the musical twice And never seen the movie. That's Jay. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? That's Jay. I I mean, I'll concede that point, but still.
1: My man. I mean, I didn't see The Lion King until, I didn't see The Lion King until, until uh, you know, after I got married and had children.
2: (sighs) I saw, I think, I I saw The Lion King way before I had, way before I was a a, a parent. I think I saw that movie, because what what year was that? 94? 95? Yeah, so okay. you were just like what? You I know, was early mid twenties, early twenties or whatever. I think I was still a teen, but I saw that movie when it came when it came out. You know, that was one. Of, that was of that era, and I think that this is this is Tremaine um, to the topic because mm-hmm. that was that era of films of Disney films that transcended age, and all of a sudden, you know, grown people could go see these movies even without kids. And part of that, I think, part of that enticement was the music.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, the first the first soundtrack album was a Disney movie. I think that speaks volumes.
2: So, but you get my point, though. Like, okay, so the early Disney movies, you know, going back to what Arthur is talking about, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, on through all the time before any of us were born. Yeah, those had, you know, music in them and, and these songs that became indelible to the culture. But mm-hmm. I think in the, in, the, in the 90s, you know, Aladdin, Lion King, and I think they're, oh, uh... Uh, Pocahontas and then there was uh, a couple other ones Um, Nemo later on in the 90s early 2000s it became these things where you know yeah you could take your kids to them but then adults were loving these films as well and I think the music has something to do with that you know the the circle of life is is a great tune but if you are an adult you probably get a little bit more meaning out of that song than maybe you know a nine year old is getting
0: sure I can believe that but, I, I
1: mean, I do, I do believe that there is an artist-driven component. I remember in 1999, Disney did an animated Tarzan movie. And, Phil, and the fact that Phil Collins did the soundtrack, mm-hmm. that was part of the promotion. Mm-hmm. Elton John doing music for The Lion King was part of the promotion. And it kind of, I don't know, it, it, thinking about it now, it's kind of baffling. Children don't care about that. They don't know who Phil and Collins is, right? Their mm-hmm. parents know who Phil Collins is.
2: Maybe, yeah, and adds. I think it adds a bit of prestige to the film as well that we take we're taking uh-huh. this very seriously. And in these films, let's, let's let's be clear about this. in the films that we're talking about, the songs are you know these are musicals. The songs are sung by the characters in the film. They have to do. They move the plot forward. You know, they're they're not like background material. So. Mm-hmm. I could see in that context, yeah, saying, "Okay, well, Phil Collins is writing the songs for this movie." It's almost it's the same as saying this person is acting in this movie or this person is directing this film.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of Phil Collins, he's got that cat's got a disproportionate number of his songs featured in movies. Oh
1: yeah. Oh man.
0: Often they'll use the same song over and over again in different movies.
1: Yeah, my I mean my ultimate. My ultimate, ultimate movie song—I've never even seen this movie—is "Against All Odds."
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that on another show, on a different show.
1: Yeah, that's like my that's that's it for me. But okay, I'm glad you brought that up because I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to stay too long in the in the animated world because this exists also in uh, you know in you know movies with <laughs> real people acting in real humanistic situations where where the song of the film is part of the driver for the film itself mm-hmm. i don't know if i phrased that i don't know if i phrased that right so forgive me but okay against all odds
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: here's another uh kiss from a rose by seal
0: mm-hmm.
1: from batman forever which might be on everybody's bottom three list of batman movies ever made
2: right but the right. the song is absolutely fantastic well, I, I think though there's there's two different things we're talking about, and it's interesting yeah. to me because in one category you have these songs that actually are, like I said before, very closely connected to the plot of the movie. You know, you talk mm-hmm. about the great James Bond songs. You know, not the you know the the, um, the Gold or the uh, Diamonds, um, are Diamonds are Forever, or the the Thunderballs, whatever. You know, um, nobody the does sky, it better. The, the, the Sky Falls. You know, you mm-hmm. talk about these songs that open up the movie and give you a glimpse of what you're about to see for the next two hours. But then in the other category, it, it's really interesting to me. Like you're talking about the early movie houses with the with the silent films you used to have the music pits. So, you mm-hmm. you know, you would have people playing piano or, you know, uh, I've seen I've actually seen films that depict that, you know, the, ta- the uh, before the talkies came out or I, they were called talkies, weren't they? Or yeah. No, they were the silent films and then the talkies. Right. So. The silent films, um, where you have musicians there playing music, the need for music—you know—it wasn't enough just to come to this movie house and watch this film and read the sub, read the the, uh, the subtitles or whatever. Um, you had to hear music. I think that really speaks to it. So it's almost like two different things, and this marriage between them seems very innate. You know, between music and movies, it seems almost necessary to the point where I'm wondering—you um, know—can Obviously music can live without film, but can film live without music? I think film can live without music, but, but and I'll we, give we an should be, and we should be clear we're, we're talking about soundtracks and songs and not scores right, right. right. That's a good
0: point.' They're, they're totally totally distinct. I mean uh, a song could be anything. it could be written for the movie, mm-hmm. it could be just used in the movie, but it could actually come from somewhere else. it can already be out there. it can be old, it could be new. Whereas scores are typically written specifically for the movie, generally incidental music, often orchestral.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do want to kind of f- focus in on what you love more—the you know, the movie or the song—and to your point about film not being able to exist without music. Um, Stanley Kubrick's 2001: A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. After the first, maybe. 15 minutes of the film there's all but no music and the lack of sound is used in the same way as an accompaniment to move the story and to bolster the storyline mm-hmm. by accentuating the silence the absence of sound in space and it's masterful mm-hmm. You don't, you don't, you
2: don't notice that the, you don't notice that the sound is not there. The whole purpose of not having, of, of, the whole purpose of withdrawing the music from that scene and making it more powerful because of the silence is because the audience is used to hearing music. So if there was absolutely no music period. Mm-hmm. Then you don't have that device anymore. It, it's
1: when you watch that film and it's not just a scene. I mean, we're talking about, we're talking about a lot of over an hour, hour and a half of of film with no, with no soundtrack. Mm hmm. And so if you weren't if that wasn't done properly, this is the point that I'm getting to, if that wasn't done properly, you would miss the sound because it would it would pardon the pun, sound like you know somebody forgot to add music to this <laughs> like using the wrong like you got the wrong cut of the movie right, right right. and if you added music to it, if you added a score to it, it, it would actually it would actually um, lessen the impact of 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 mm-hmm. the
0: film, of the visual hmm that applies equally whether or not you're using a score or whether you're using a soundtrack mm-hmm. for that right that applies equally but are, are you saying therefore that it kind of sounds like you're going against what you were asking which is you don't need a song you just need the visuals is is that what you're saying or does it depend on I think on it the depends
1: context? I think it depends on the context but even more so I think it depends on being in the hands of a capable director to make the decision on where the soundtrack needs to be Of
0: course yeah
1: take a movie like tim burton's batman from 1989 right there are two albums there's a there's an original motion picture soundtrack composed by danny elfman and then there's a prince album music from the motion picture and what three songs one or two completely are you can hear in the movie and the third song which i think is the future is heard in the background like coming out of a passing car you Mm -hmm. know you can you can tell that music was put in the movie prince music because they paid for it because they paid for it and it's a market driver and you know there's a promotional campaign behind it and all of that but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily
2: fit You, you, you wouldn't the music doesn't help the scenes yeah, I think the '89 Batman I think is one of the examples to me. And I remember thinking this when I saw the movie um, as a as a pre preteen or whatever. That was one of the worst examples of music placement. Um, <laughs> I think that the Party Man scene, when Jack uh-huh. Nicholson the Joker is uh you know tearing up that museum or whatever, I'm like, why wasn't that louder? Why why wasn't the music dominating that scene? It was like that was the place where that song was supposed to be, but it was like almost like it was shoved in the back almost.
0: Yeah. But you know what? When it comes to soundtracks, like exactly like that, like new material, new songs recorded by famous artists in particular, how much of it is right. a marketing tool rather than rather than the sounds that actually, truly complements mm-hmm, the vision, mm-hmm. the genuine vision of the filmmakers?
2: Okay. I, yeah. I, right. I agree with what you're saying as far as increasingly now um and we can get off the the batman thing but you know batman prince those are my that's like a sweet spot for me so i'm gonna stay on it for just another second i think that prince did an excellent job of marrying that music to the film like those songs you know he's telling the story of that that film through those songs i think he did an expert job that's literally and music inspired by the film exactly and i mm-hmm. think that bat dance if you remember hit the radio maybe a month, maybe longer than that before the film came out. And Bad Dance is one of the reasons that movie has such a big opening because the video came out and this is mm. pre-internet. So this is before we had all these, these behind the scenes access before a film dropped. Bad Dance comes out, we start getting glimpses of the film and then we hear you know, Jack Nicholson, we hear Michael Keaton's voice, um, we hear Vicki Vale's voice, um, Kim Basinger's voice. So it was like a it built up a lot of anticipation for this film. And I think he did a great job. I just think Tim Burton did a horrible job um, editing the music into the film um, in post. Uh, But I agree with what you're saying, Jahan. Now it does feel more like marketing. And I can't remember recently in the last few years. I can't remember, you know, one of the movies I saw other than maybe Black Panther with a uh what's song what's the Arthur what's the song Arthur? Um, all the Stars. All the Stars. Yeah. I can't remember like a, a huge song that, you know and really to be honest, All the Stars, it didn't you know, I remember it being in the film but it wasn't like It was in the end know, credit. It, yeah, it wasn't like a moment in the film. It right. wasn't like a John Hughes moment. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like it defined the film and defined the film. It wasn't it was wasn't danger zone for Top Gun. Right, it wasn't danger zone, yeah. So that I, I I agree 100% with what Jahan is saying. Now it feels like an yeah. extra, like a, like a, um, extra limb or something added on to the, to the movie that doesn't really need to be there, um, except for the purposes of marketing. It seems like they've forgotten how to, they, they know how to market, but they've forgotten how to integrate it into the film. So it actually makes the film better.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I mean, I do feel, I, I feel similar to, to, uh, how I, how I, how I started this off with The Lion King and Beyonce's spirit um we're putting you know her and her star power behind this movie as a vehicle for movie ticket sales
2: and for you know and for song sales mm-hmm. but I, I don't have any problem with that when it helps the film and i think the best you know you ask okay you helps know, the film or felt helps the story helps this well I'm, I'm, I'm saying film but i mean the narrative the story yeah okay okay so yeah i'm not talking about box office although i don't you know i don't begrudge them that you got to sell tickets but at the same but yeah i don't mind it if it's helping the narrative but you asked yeah. originally you asked you know is it the movie that you know audiences are they going is it the movie that's most important to them or is it the music that's with the movie obviously people go to movies because it's the movie that's drawing them it's the film it's the narrative it's the story it's the stars it's whatever mm-hmm. you know is happening mm-hmm. on screen but i think nothing is better than when that perfect song aligns with that perfect moment in the film and i think one of the best examples of all time is uh whitney houston's i will always love you in the bodyguard Mm -hmm. i don't care if you are never seen that jesus christ i mean i haven't seen it either but
1: i don't need to i I don't need to i heard the music (laughs) (laughs) but i'm saying i don't need to like I remember. Hold no, on. Neither remember, one of you have ever seen it. No, my girlfriend at the time had the album.
2: Like neither I one haven't of seen
1: that. Seen I've never seen. I the album either. I've never seen "Waiting to Exhale." My girlfriend had that album.
2: I feel like I, um, echo, I need to echo something that Jahan said to me many years ago on the music spot. Have you ever been with a woman?
0: <laughs> <laughs> my girls ain't corny, bro.
2: My girls got taste. How are you in the? F- my, my girls How are you your age and you've never seen <laughs> the bodyguard? Oh my god! You've been with women and you've never seen the bodyguard. <laughs> I haven't seen The Preacher's Wife. First of all, John, first of all, The Bodyguard is not a bad film. So Taste, you can take that out of it. It's not a bad movie. It's a very mainstream, you know, predictable film, but it's not a bad movie. But OK, let me just describe this scene to you heathens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of the film, spoiler alert, when they, you know, actually, you know what? It's not predictable because everybody else except for you guys has seen the movie so I'm going to have to spoil it for you too sorry but at the end of the movie (laughs) please um, feel free Yeah, at the end of the film when the two stars do not get together um, it doesn't end with them together um, they go their separate ways and you know it's during that climactic climactic moment when you realize oh shit they're going to go their separate ways Um, and it's you know the final kiss and the goodbye at the airport and when Whitney's voice drops in Mm-hmm. Um, with that first line, bruh, <laughs> <Just saying>. <laughs> bruh. <laughs> I don't care how hard you are. You know uh-huh. what I'm saying? I don't care how uh-huh. tough you are. I don't care. I don't care. That hits you. You're gonna feel that one in your heart. You know what I'm saying? Because it, it's perfect. water. No, it ain't even about it. Because it's it's almost not. It's not so much sad. I guess it is sad, but uh-huh. it's just like a perfect moment. It's like damn. If you gotta say goodbye to somebody. Let that shit be playing when you're saying goodbye. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just a, per- and from a um, technical standpoint, from an artistic standpoint, you just, just can't pre- believe
0: that this is your example.
2: <laughs> I mean, like, no, no disrespect, but this what of a perfect song in the perfect time in the movie.
0: Yeah, that when you this see, when you your... see,
2: bro, when you see the film, even if you hate it, you will have to admit that that was the perfect moment i agree with arthur's earlier point about top gun to me that's another great example danger zone perfect at that mm-hmm. moment in the film so there's perfect songs that you hear outside of the movie and you you know again like the black panther song but it's like that's like so you know not even on the same level as a lot of these other examples where the song hits i the tiger and rocky three i think it is hits at the exact right moment and it's like oh my god and you see it, it immortalizes both the scene and the song at the same exact time and that happened in the bodyguard you heartless mother i'm sorry go ahead
0: <laughs> <laughs> no i i get what you mean i get what you mean i mean when it works perfectly when there's that perfect as you said marriage it makes it indelible and in the best cases, it definitely wouldn't work as well without those particular songs. Yeah. I, I hear you. And vice versa. Sometimes songs can resonate with you once you've seen them in a particular movie, in a particular scene, and you've had that emotional kind of assist, if you like, mm-hmm. um, that you you might not necessarily have liked the song without that.
2: That sums up a lot of John Hughes-esque, you know, mid-80s type beat, you know, songs. But yeah, you know, I, there's a lot of those type of songs that... I may not, to your point, I may not have connected to as strongly, but then they have such a strong connection to the film for me. But I think that for everything we've talked up until this point, we're talking about music being added in post. But I know I've read articles, I've seen directors talking about it and writers who specifically write, you know, a scene with a certain song in mind or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they, they you know, Michael Mann um, famously solicits specific artists You know, saying to get you know specific music into his movies, Um,
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of his necessarily, but um, Quentin Tarantino he has a library like knowledge of everything that goes around film, and including all the soundtracks over the years and songs that have been used in different films, etc. And I think he, by his own admission, sometimes he's seen a film and thought, ah, this would go perfectly and this scene or, you know, oh, I'm going to use this for that.
2: Does that sometimes get in the way for you guys? Does it take you out of the movie sometimes?
0: Uh, yes and no. Sometimes it can be distracting. You know, if I've seen a film that uses a particular song to great effect, to see it in another one, it, it can be hard for me to separate my memory of that other film and everything that goes with it. So sometimes perhaps the filmmakers just like the song and they want to use it again it's nothing to do with the other movie but sometimes i wonder if they're trying to capitalize on the power that a previous scene in a previous movie had and they're hoping that that will trigger the same sort of feeling when you watch their film um but then you know like i can't be mad at people who do it i suppose if if i'm not mad at hip-hop because you know it's sampling i guess you know quentin tarantino is digging in that respect
2: yeah, but I think that, and this, I think I know. Before we move off of this, I think that to answer, or to kind of go back to what Arthur was talking about earlier about the marketing, what we're seeing now is that not only are is are, is music and and songs, are music and songs being used um, for particular scenes within the film, they're being they're being used to sell trailers, mm-hmm. and these are songs that won't even appear in the, in this, in the movie, in the finished product. One of the biggest examples is uh, Logan logan came out i think it was last year 2017 i think it was early 2018 logan came out and one of the first trailers had johnny cash's uh arthur what's the song it starts with i hurt myself again is that the name of the song i don't know i'm not a johnny cash dude
1: no i think the song i think <laughs> the song's just called hurt but i don't remember how the lyric starts but go okay ahead.
2: So, you know jay you know what song i'm talking about it starts with i hurt myself again isn't it isn't it originally a Nirvana track or something? Nine Inch Nails. Nine Inch Nails. So Mm -hmm. it's it's, it's, And he did it, apparently he did it much better than they did. So I've seen that song in a lot of different clips for a lot of different television shows, films, etc. But it really worked well in this trailer for Logan. Um, Mm -hmm. The trailer was perfect. You can tell that the trailer was perfectly matched to that song specifically. And it was, I think it worked, you know, it, it helped to sell. You know, it helped to get people excited about this film but I'm kind of torn as far as like, how do I feel about that? Cause it's like that I don't believe the song was in the, in the actual finished product. It was just mm-hmm. used to sell the trailer. Um, so in terms of what you're talking about, as far as marketing a movie songs, I think that, you know, and this is maybe this is great news for artists, for music, musical artists, because songs have actually stepped up a notch. You know, they've gone to another level. It's like, Hey, we can't just, you can't just, uh, you don't have to just save us for the movie. We can help you in your trailers. We can help you market this. We can help you market that. Um, so that's another level of this another layer
0: yeah i agree I, ultimately i think it all depends on how it's done mm-hmm. um a great example is martin scorsese's goodfellas where he uses a huge amount of songs in the movie um often not just for a kind of tonal quality but almost for a sort of storytelling role um mm-hmm. the movie mm-hmm. it covers 25 years And the songs sometimes are there to signify the time period that we're in. And sometimes it's there to signify romance or signify violence Mm -hmm. or whatever. But um, actually, my favorite one is a very unexpected choice. It's um, he uses Eric Clapton's Layla, but Mm -hmm. he uses the outro to Layla, which is this kind of, I don't know, this kind of country Mm -hmm. soft rock kind of vibe. It's got a melancholy vibe to it, but it's it's not like super aggressive or anything, certainly compared to the rest of the song. And he uses it to depict the discovery that the character played by Robert De Niro, Jimmy, has been murdering pretty much everybody he works with in order to keep the spoils of a particular robbery. And you just start to see body after body after body. And we basically start seeing all these corpses. And this this kind Mm -hmm. of country soft rock tune mm. is playing in the background and I always, I always thought it was a trip, but I always really liked the use of it
2: I, I think that it's for me it's, it's okay or more acceptable to use those quote-unquote standards or you know um, unoriginal songs in your film if it's a period piece you know if it's a film that's defining a certain era but when it's a modern film when it's taking place a contemporary film I feel like we lose something if you're not, because films can, film and television can help you discover music. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I remember uh, watching, back in the day, watching Entourage on HBO. And, you know, whether you hated the show or not, their music supervisor was dope. I forgot his name. He's done a lot of HBO films. Um, But he, there's a lot of songs he would just introduce, um, you know, unexpected stuff he would introduce on the show that, when Spotify came, became available, he would throw up, you know, here's the songs that were playing. These are like, you know, modern songs that you had never heard of, you know, an artist that you could discover. I mentioned Michael Mann earlier. You know, he would he would, you know, have music or commission, you know, songs or whatever. Or find artists um, that were contemporary to define a contemporary television show or movie. And so I feel like we lose something, I th- you know. Uh, 007, the the James Bond movies and the uh, John Barry scores and soundtracks, the songs that he did um, that he, the artists he worked with, you can go through the 60s 70s, 80s and early 90s listen to those songs now and you get a sense of that era, you know you, you can it's almost like a history lesson of what was going on at the time, just musically so I feel like, to John's point, like when you hear Goodfellas, that's a, you know, as a film takes place in a certain time period, not a contemporary mm-hmm. film at the moment, at the moment it was filmed, So I feel like, yeah, it's appropriate to use those songs. But yeah, when a Quentin Tarantino movie comes out and, you know, his current one um, is obviously a a period piece. But if it's a contemporary film, I I don't necessarily want to hear a bunch of old songs. Um, I feel like you lose something there in the discovery, if that makes any sense.
0: No, it does. I I don't know. I mean, I think it can work both ways. I think, um, like, I can't think of an example, but i'm gonna make one up just imagine if there was a mature black romance kind of in the vein of love jones if that dropped and in a key scene they used the isley brothers footsteps in the dark Mm. wouldn't that be dope
2: no i wouldn't like that and the reason i wouldn't like that is because it's such a stat we already know that song you know what i'm saying it's like that's Love Jones when Love Jones dropped it had a bunch of original music in there where we may have known those artists but then it's like man that really defined that era you know you can go back and listen to that soundtrack and it'll take you right back to I think that's 1994 so if you put like you know a standard you know if you put Ain't No Mountain High Enough or something like that and I've seen this in like contemporary television mm-hmm. shows and music sometimes I feel like they're expecting to, the music to carry the weight of the narrative and then it's like the, the scene or whatever isn't as strong because you're thinking that this song is going to do the heavy lifting for you and i feel like i'm, I'm i feel like i'm being my it's almost like they feel like okay people have a, a strong connection to this song already so we put it in this particular scene this will be it's almost like that's the part of the storytelling that we're doing and sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't
0: yeah I, i'm not I'm, i mean you know i'm not suggesting that this stuff be used as a crutch like either the movie or like either visuals or the song be used as a crutch for the other. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that. The sound. We mm-hmm. you know we're talking about soundtracks. I mean, the soundtrack to my life. I don't need it to be contemporary. Mm-hmm. Now, I appreciate it can be different if you're talking about visuals in the cinema, but I don't know if it should be.
1: So look, there's a. The, we're starting to get into a um, a subject that I wanted to explore a little bit more. the The idea that the idea that um, songs, I don't know, ma- manipulate us. Into liking a, a, a scene or even an entire film.
2: And now. Well, I think to me, if you're asking about manipulation, like I said earlier, I do feel a sense of manipulation when it's a song specifically for, specifically for a trailer or something like that. And it's like, it's clearly a marketing move.
0: Just the way that all modern trailers are done today now is so corny. It's so typical it's like one guy made it once Mm -hmm. one editor did it and that poor fellow has been ripped off to kingdom come they should just get some creativity but I hate the way these songs are being covered now in modern trailers and they're being re-harmed in a darker kind of more melancholy way uh, more sinister way Um, I hate it a lot of the time they'll use a musical motif by taking something one particular sound like a clock ticking or water dripping Mm. or a foot tapping or whatever and they'll establish a rhythm with Mm -hmm. it throughout the trailer. Mm -hmm. It's been done and done and done to death and they need to get more creative. But yeah, definitely taking these songs, covering them, reharmonizing them in this kind of sinister way, it's for the birds. Get some creativity and do it differently.
2: What about you, Arthur? Do you feel like some of these, you know, some of this this, um, soundtracking or the placement of songs is is a manipulation, is a manipulative move?
1: Yeah, I... I mean I think so. Um you know for the in prepping for this show I had a really really hard time coming up with contemporary examples of songs being, you know, a a driver for me wanting to go see the film. Um and it was much easier for me to come up with examples of films that I either saw or didn't see on the strength of the music that was in it mm. for example Flashdance. i liked the music and i wanted to see the movie that accompanied this music or mm. you notice how i said that because that's how i was looking at it you know mm. footloose is an example of me not wanting to see the film because i did yeah, like yeah, kenny it, Loggins, right, right. but I, I i wasn't yeah i didn't care for the yeah. tune very much um i wanted to see National Lampoon's Vacation because of um, <laughs> Lindsey Buckingham's Holiday Road. Mm-hmm. That was my joint. You know, <laughs>
2: <laughs> that song doesn't that shit just put you in a good mood? But then I, I can just puts you I, in a good mood. No, yeah. I can't separate the that song from the film though. It's just like I, I hear that song and I smile because I think of not just the song, but then Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo. Beverly
1: D'Angelo, yeah. Um, But, you know, most recently, I I, I mean, I really struggled trying to find some some examples of me wanting to go see a movie because of the music that was that was in it. That
2: wasn't like associated to like that wasn't like a musical. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's here's a good example before we move off of this. Here's a here's a quick example of, to me, manipulation, which went when when the music went the wrong way. And that is the Black Panther soundtrack. Because this was marketed as as Kendrick Lamar's soundtrack, right? That's right. And we talked about this extensively. We talked about this extensively in a previous episode of Snobs on Film, um, which you guys can go back and listen to, um, the Black Panther episode. But this was a soundtrack that, to me, when I heard it, I was shocked because it seemed to have absolutely nothing to do with this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, I think with maybe the exception of the hit song, the All the Stars song, but really there was so much material on this album that sounded almost antithetical to the message or the the tone or the mood of the film.
0: Yeah, this is what happens when the purpose is not to be a soundtrack, but when the purpose is cross promo.
2: Exactly. I was, you know, I agree with you to some degree that, yeah, there's a lot of cross promotion going on now. Mm-hmm. And I think the Black Panther soundtrack is a big example of that. This this soundtrack had absolutely nothing to do, not just lyrically it didn't it was lyrically as well but Mm -hmm. not just lyrically but just the tone the themes you Mm -hmm. know it's just nothing Mm -hmm. to do with this movie and compare that to something like with above the realm um which did if not in exact lyrical content and at least mood and tone it matched that film um so there does seem to be a a disconnect now you know where it does work though the soundtrack for into the spider verse yes wait a minute you know what I'm going to agree with you on, the, on the, the strength of only hearing a few of the songs I haven't heard the whole soundtrack except but I you know as what was played during the film um, yeah I agree with you yeah yeah, it that worked fit, a lot better it, yeah it definitely fit the mood and the tone of that movie and the, and and, the energy of that mm-hmm, film
0: mm-hmm. alright well let me flip it on you let me use something that I know we're all very familiar with mm. the boomerang soundtrack mm-hmm. is that cross promo?
1: I think it's cross-promo. I think Boomerang's cross-promo. I think Waiting to Exhale was cross-promo.
2: But I think they were cross-promo, but they're also perfectly used in that film, especially the, uh, uh, I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, as far as, you know, you should have brought your ass home last night, that line, or the Tony Braxton song. I don't know which came first.
0: Mm -hmm. But
2: that was, you know, it was a perfect marriage. It it defined that, you know, it fit perfectly with that scene and with the movie, the third act of that movie. So, cross promo in the sense that yeah it had all the you know the LeFace and you know all, all mm-hmm. everybody that was popular mm-hmm. at that time was on that soundtrack mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time it wasn't like the Black Panther example it was almost like they completely ignored the movie and just made what they thought were hot tracks
0: mm-hmm. okay but let, let me contrast it now with a film from a few years later Love and Basketball and I'll specify mm. two tunes mm-hmm. that were on the soundtrack Maxwell's This Woman's Work and Michelle and Dago Cello's Fool of Me. That's... Oh,
2: dude, when that when that ball drops, <laughs> when that basketball drops and Michelle comes on and that beat hits, it's like, dude, oh man, come on. That's perfect. Perfect.
0: Right, and, we, and we've talked about that specifically on this mm. show I think a couple of times before. But Maxwell's This Woman's Work in the love scene, that's, oof, that's such a beautiful song to have in a scene like that. And... Um, That's an example of something. I can't imagine a different song in that scene.
1: Great Mm.
2: film. Shout out to Gina Price. I think it's Blythewood. Shout out to her. Beautiful beautiful and brilliant movie.
1: Well, I want to get to a point that I had alluded to uh, in one of my previous remarks. Um, The period where the marriage between soundtracks and the films that they appear in um, just got it right. And that would be the 1980s. Uh, But Mm. before... Before we get to that, I want to thank everyone that has been leaving us comments and ratings uh, in Apple Podcasts uh, for both shows, The Music Snobs and Snobs on Film. And I encourage you to leave more. We need more to keep doing these shows. Um, More ratings, more comments. We can be found uh, on Spotify as well, where you can follow us. Um, we're in Stitcher. We are in Google's podcast channel. Uh, everywhere that find RSS feeds are
2: distributed.
0: Wait, do we? Do these give any money? Wh- which Which of these pays <laughs> us the most, bro? Oh, that
1: would be Apple Podcasts. <laughs> Wait a
0: minute, we're getting paid. <laughs> One of y'all got some explaining to <laughs> Right, right, exactly. No, we we don't. We don't get anything.
2: So, listen, this is the season finale for these shows. So, if let me ask you guys, if you had to. Like what? Because I mean, people, you know, over the next um, during the hiatus, I'm sure people are going to go back and check out the back catalog. So, what what do you guys recommend? Like, let's say I'm new and I want to check out um, Snobs on Film. What 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 episode should I go to to like really tell me about this show and tell me how dope it is? Oh well, for
1: me, I mean, hands down, that would be the show that we did with actor Omar Dorsey Mm. uh, of Queen Sugar and also of uh, the Last Halloween. I believe it came out in fall of 2018 we did a show with omar called the denzel effect where we talked about uh the concept of there could only be one uh dominant black actor at a time denzel washington being the clear prototype uh for that um and in that episode we looked at the rise of michael b jordan asked the question if he was next in line Mm -hmm. uh to be the one it's a great show. I recommend everybody to check it out. It was our second episode uh, for this season, and we even did a new segment that uh, I'm anxious to try again uh, in a, maybe next season, called Black Roulette, where we took a, <laughs> <laughs> where we took a black actor and the role that they played in uh, in, a, in a performance, but inserted them into a distinctly white film or television show. Uh, that was th- that, that was hilarious. Uh, I think Omar won that
2: round. <laughs> I, yeah i think that when you guys go back and check out some of the previous episodes um one thing i think you'll find is that there's things that are said and done on this show on snobs on film and on the music snobs that um are not done on other <laughs> uh, music and, and music podcasts so uh yeah check it <laughs> out be prepared
0: or well, that are done <laughs> but are done after our show's come out
2: Right, Uh, and and I yeah, and I was gonna say Bond the I think it's the third episode of the season Bond Two, B O N T O O. That was the name of the episode hashtag Bond Two question mark That was one of my favorite episodes, not just because of the content, but because we you know prophesized um, almost what was about to happen immediately. It it wasn't too long after that episode got released where kind of a lot of things we predicted happened um, as far as you know what was going to the new tone of the next Bond film. Um, but to John's point, yeah, you are going to also see a pattern of, you know, things that we do and talk about that somehow end up in other media um, sources. That's all I'm going to say about it. But somehow, you know, I don't know, haphazardly end up in other places um, without as, without without the kind of attribution you would expect uh, when that happens. Um, but what? OK, so what TMS, what music snobs episodes should people go back and check out?
0: I'm going to suggest that they go to... Um A music snobs episode that we did, entitled "Let's Be Frank," you don't know Sinatra. I
2: knew you were gonna say that. That's right. I knew you were gonna say that. I knew you were gonna say that. (laughs) If you got listen, if you don't, if you love John, go listen to this episode. He might. (laughs) He got beef.
0: (laughs) For me, it's a toss-up between that and the music journalism episode. The Frank episode, I. I'm partial to it because A, I like that kind of music, and B, I think this particular episode came out around the time of the Quincy documentary. I think, so you know, if if you like that documentary, our episode on Frank mm-hmm. is a mm-hmm. is a nice companion to that. Mm-hmm. Agreed.
2: And also, you mentioned the uh, the journalism episode, Media Assassins. Um, I think it was number two. We have our man Daytuan, uh Thomas from Vibe Magazine was on and. Excellent, excellent episode. Um, so check that out as well. Um, you know, so yeah, check out both seasons, and then there's back catalogs. You guys can go and look at um, before we start doing the seasonal format. Um, there's a lot of episodes out there you can go check out um, and, and, and get your fill before during the hiatus.
1: All right, maybe the greatest decade for the marriage between soundtrack and film, the 1980s. Mm. I think that this was the peak. I think that the songs of that era really transcended
2: the cinema and uh, defined the decade itself well, let me ask you a question I think I agree with you that that I mean let's let's be honest though we're a little bit biased because we're mostly 80s kids here I think we should acknowledge that bias but let me say let me ask you guys this question though because I think I agree with you how much did MTV have to do with that because mm. here for the first time ever, because we didn't have this in the 60s, didn't have this in the 70s. For the first time ever, we had, you know, video and music, you know, extremely accessible if you had cable um, in the 80s. And I guess, I don't know, John, in the UK, was it available in the UK in the early 80s or, did, or was it the late 80s?
0: Yeah, I, we didn't, I mean, speaking for my family, we didn't get it until, I want to say like the 2000s at the earliest. I don't so,
1: I, I don't know. I mean I I won't deny that MTV had had an
2: effect and mm. had a hand in this. Cause you remember Arthur, you remember those early videos but, even in the eighties where you had if it was associated with a film, you would have interspersed without the throughout the um video, you'd have clips of the movie. You know what I'm saying? That was very common. Right. So right, that marriage right. was very even if you didn't see the film, that marriage was there so the, the the actual the medium the mediums of film and mm-hmm. you know video and music was very prominent in a way that it hadn't been prominent before in our homes so i'm just asking that do you think that had anything to do with it
1: i mean obviously mtv because it was novel mm-hmm. um and because it was so far-reaching it put videos in front of the eyes of millions of young people who went to go subsequently and see these films
2: i I think that you're right the 80s did do more you know is in comparison to other decades probably did more to marry the music of these of these films with the cultural zeitgeist at the moment and i think proof Mm -hmm. of that is that there's so many films and television shows now going back to that well you know stranger Mm -hmm. things obviously being the most prominent but there's you know kind of like a backlash now to kind of not, not a backlash but a um um a throwback era now it's like people are going to that well of the 80s and getting into that nostalgia i think part of that is because that music so heavily the music that was associated with those movies did a did a lot of heavy lifting as far as like you know capturing those moments in time
0: i think it depends when you grew up i think if you grew up in those eras it would mean more to you but if we're being objective about it like other eras have just as powerful songs and you know (laughs) Rather than actually, rather than argue with you, I'll I'd, I'd just throw out some songs, which I think, I'll uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. just throw out some song titles that I think are pretty much um, iconic evidence of that. You have Somewhere Over the Rainbow from The Wizard of Oz. That's like the 30s. Um, As Time Goes By from Casablanca. Yeah. That's like the 40s, I think. You have Mrs. Robinson from The Graduate, you know, the Simon and Garfunkel tune. That's like what, the 60s, 60s, 60s or 70s? 60s. Late 60s. Right. 60, okay, right. You have When You Wish Upon a Star from Pinocchio. That's mm-hmm. that's become like the iconic mm-hmm. Disney melodic motif, right? They, Disney have rinsed it over the years.
2: Give me some 70s. S- Superfly, Curtis Mayfield, theme from Shaft, Isaac mm-hmm. Hayes.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly, exactly.
2: So now I'm wondering, is it is it not that the 80s was the greatest era? Is it more so that the 80s was the last great era? In other well, words, was the eighty was the eighties the last great era of, you know, movies from mo- songs from movies capturing the zeitgeist of the culture?
0: We haven't even gone into musicals, right? Like West Side Story, etc. We haven't even gone into those, and that that might mm-hmm. those may be a different I, dimension. I think that's but, a separate. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that's separate. Yeah, yeah. So here is the thing. All these tunes that we've just mentioned and, you know, all the John Hughes tunes that you mentioned earlier, these are great, great tunes. You know, what's, what's messing with Gonna Fly Now from Rocky? Mm-hmm. What, what's messing with The Days of Wine and Roses from the film of the same name? These are great tunes. And, you know, it's, Isaac, it's nice to see you use this term. I think it really fits. These are standards. Mm-hmm. You know, we could go for two more hours just mentioning song names. So my question is, are there songs on movie soundtracks today? In the same volume that there were in the 70s 60s etc
2: no but you hit it volume yeah no i i don't i don't think they are yeah i don't think they are and i think that the prime example is what we already mentioned two things is that one that logan trailer where they depended upon you know a, a, a standard so to speak to sell that movie and then the black panther soundtrack i think the term that you use cross promotion is key to this conversation is not about so much matching a perfect scene you know, or taking a scene and matching it with the perfect song, um, especially not a contemporary song. I think it's about um, cross promoting. How do we promote this? How do we promote this movie through a soundtrack? Who can we get on the soundtrack? Doesn't matter mm-hmm. if the music is actually played during the movie. You know, we we'll mm-hmm. play it in the trailer or we'll play it over the end credits, whatever. We'll do a YouTube joint, Instagram, whatever. It's not necessarily about you know the artistic value of it. It's more so about cross promotion. Except, except in the in the the, the vein of a Lion King or other musicals, um, mm-hmm. that's a different that's a different animal to me. But
1: I guess I'm pushing the '80s because of the and Jahan had said this word because of the volume, and I do think that MTV had a hand in its promotion. But I can't put it. Too heavy on MTV because that costs money. Like cable costs money. Then, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, hey, here's MTV and it's just
2: on your television. Nah. Mm-hmm. But it did. I mean, MTV and I, you know that was a minor point. But just to just to uh, throw one last thing on it, MTV did. You know, MTV MTV still exists. You know, I don't think anybody watches it, but MTV still exists. But MTV MTV is a Um, cultural artifact of the 1980s. True. You know what I'm saying? It's it's indelible to that that time period. And what is MTV? It's music.
0: And beyond that, 80s and 90s. Yeah,
2: 80s and 90s, you know, Total Request Live, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying as far as the 80s are concerned, that's, you know, it's like hip-hop. You know, hip-hop existed long past the 80s, but it's a the infancy and the Mm. kind of the golden the golden age of that or the
0: and a lot of people call generation x the mtv generation
2: exactly that's the term Mm. i was looking for the mtv generation so and we are we are that generation i just want to acknowledge that it wasn't permeate
1: like it didn't automatically permeate like youtube does like in my house i didn't have an mt i didn't have mtv in my house until like
2: 1988 damn you know you see you see what i'm saying yeah, well, John's yeah, we, got an excuse. Never he had an ocean yeah, between. Yeah. And, him without,
1: and without, without, you uh, know, without, without adding that. <laughs> this is why I'm pushing it so strong. Without adding that context,
2: you know. Mm-hmm. Where did you watch videos at then? It'd be
1: like at my friend's on, house.
2: Uh, okay, and then on like on Soul Train or whatever, uh, in some of the the, the local
1: yeah, like video jukebox yeah. or something like that. Right, you know, video jukebox, uh, Soul yeah. Beat in Oakland.
0: You know, I know someone out there is going to feel me on this and throw up the fist in solidarity. But friends of mine, girls, boys, whatever, would make me tapes, like videotapes for eight hours, Um, high-speed dubbing. Mm -hmm. Um, It
2: almost sounds to me like you guys are saying that, or kind of like we're moving towards that idea that maybe instead of saying the 80s was the greatest period, again, I kind of need to reiterate, it feels like you're saying that it was the last great period of this. And maybe there was some of that in the 90s, but not necessarily the way it was in the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, the 50s, the 40s. And then, then you guys brought up the kiss with "Kiss from a Rose." Yeah, yeah, Yeah,
0: I feel you. But on the level of windmills of your mind from Thomas Crown Affair, and the sheer volume of material at that time, nah, I don't think so.
2: So before we move into the roundtable, maybe we should just ask you know our listeners. You guys should comment, um, hit us on Twitter, and let us know your favorite combination of music, of of song, um, and or soundtrack, and film, and or scene.
1: Our Twitter handle uh, for the Music Snobs is Total Music Snobs. And yeah, we would like to get some feedback on what you think.
2: Roundtable?
1: All right, let's do the roundtable. One question. Three opinions. We're calling this one, take the soundtrack, leave the film.
2: Name the movie. <laughs> What's that? Hold on. What's that from?
1: That's, from, that? The, oh, that's from The Godfather.
2: Okay. I just, leave just the checking. gun. Take let's the checking. cannoli. I, saw, I see you. All right. I mean, y'all already disappointed me with the bodyguard you. shit, so I, I was just making you. sure. Okay. All right,
1: all right. Clemenza, I see you.
2: <laughs> Take the soundtrack, leave
1: the film, got it. Name the movie soundtrack or hit song from a soundtrack that you absolutely love, even though you have no desire to ever see the movie again. Uh, I want to go last. I think I went first last time.
0: Jahan? Buy a bit of a cop-out. I mean, it's, it's too easy because I don't think... Anyone, I don't think a single soul listening is going to disagree with me. So I'll take the soundtrack to Above the Rim Mm. and I'll leave the movie. (laughs) Actually, actually let me rephrase that. I took the soundtrack to Above the Rim and I left the movie.
2: (laughs) I was about to say, did you ever see the movie? Did you walk out in the middle of the movie?
0: I did, I did, I did. Actually, it was kind of dope because... It was a, um, it was like a double screening of the music video, which was like an extended music video, kind of mini film, for Snoop's "Murder Was the Case," and at that time, Death Row was the thing. And boy, yeah, no, 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 it was, it was weird. It was a cool, it was a cool night, but the night was cooler than the movie, if you know what I mean. You know what's funny about the '90s though is that I think the soundtracks generally punched above their weight. I think they were often better than the films that they were paired with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, had, had the films been of a higher quality, then, um, you know, we, we might have had a classic era of um, movies matching soundtracks and vice versa. W-
2: what, are some, what are some of the songs? What are some of the songs off of there?
0: Gosh, I mean, we could, we could mention most of the tracks, but you had um, Regulate, Nate Dogg and Warren G. Oh, yeah. You had uh, SWV Anything. Hmm. sweet sable old time sake you had um, blowed away by b rizzell which produced by Devante. if you like that "Die of a mad band jodeci era boy, boy what a track mm-hmm.
1: afro puffs is on that one too isn't it
0: yep yep yeah yeah rage you had big Pimpin'" by the dog pound just like beautiful cali vibe to it but if you if you take a film like easy rider which you know has a classic american rock soundtrack to it um above the room is kind of on that level of soundtrack not film but soundtrack because I don't think I don't think there's another soundtrack out there for that time that speaks to that time in the same way
2: but you know, you know what? speaking of here's what I appreciate about that soundtrack and that time period is because this is obviously before um, uh, you know streaming and you know hooking up your iPod or your iPhone or whatever to your car so you not and not everybody had a CD player in the right. car so if you had a cassette deck in your car, you needed something that banged from track one all the way to track twelve or sixteen or whatever, because you want you know the rewind. In fact, that was that was you know troublesome. That was bothersome. So you could put that. I remember putting above the remand and just letting it play, you know. And then no matter what, when you got back in your car, it didn't matter what track it was on. When you have all bangers like that, you know, and it and it just it's just such a an appreciative experience, you know. Um, that's all I remember about that soundtrack. I agree with you Jay Because I, I, um, I may have a little bit more love for the film than you But like you I can't remember anything about it um, So I, other than I remember uh, Pac was in it of course And oh boy Tisha Campbell's boyfriend Dwayne said, Martin That's all Husband yeah That's all I can remember
1: Okay um, I struggled a little bit Did a little soul searching for my pick Um this is a uh, this is a soundtrack that I have talked about in um, bits and pieces throughout the history of the music snobs. But I'm gonna take school days from 1988 and leave mm. the film. Mmm. <laughs> Damn. Jesus. You know, I found Damn. I found that. Um, you know, over the years, I, I periodically reach for the soundtrack and play it either in full or nearly in full. Um, but I have not had desire to see the movie. And I can't even remember the last time that I saw this
0: movie, how long it's been. Well, hang on. I, I just want to clarify. Are you saying when you say leave the movie, are you saying you saw it once? you got everything you needed from it. It was, it was perfect. You don't ever need to see it again. It's not the kind of movie that you need to experience repeat viewings of.
1: That is exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. Um, and mm. I think that... This is why I say I was doing some soul searching. Because I think that... Because I lived through that period in real time. And had yeah. s- similar experiences that are outlined in the movie um, it doesn't it it doesn't speak to me anymore
0: can I just say that knowing knowing you as I know you knowing where you went to university and your political outlook mm. I could <laughs> picture <laughs> you in that movie mm. and and you know I mean all this is a compliment you know it's oh it's no I'm taking it as such but, um, yeah just knowing you as I know you I would say like the experiences depicted in that movie are some of the most yeah, some of those are part of the fabric yeah. of your life. And so but let me let me
1: just talk about the the premise of the film just very 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 briefly. Um it deals with Half Pint, it's played by Spike Lee. And uh it the, the whole film takes place in Atlanta on a historically uh an HBCU an historically uh black college university. Um it was filmed on More, Morehouse College's campus, which is Spike's undergrad alma mater. Um, and Spike plays a pledge. He's pledging the most popular fraternity on campus, Gamma Phi Gamma. Um, the dean of pledges is played by Giancarlo Esposito, big brother almighty.
0: Um,
1: and Half is the cousin of DAP, who's played by Lawrence Fishburne. And DAP is leading student protests against the university administration for either that for their stance on divesting in South Africa. So we're dealing with late 80s apartheid with uh, still a system in South Africa. Um,
2: was this before or after Do The Right Thing? This
1: is the film before Do The Right Thing. Right before. This film leading up after to that. She's got a habit, after she's gotta have it, before Do The yes, Right after thing. she's gotta have it. Um, it deals with um, color clashes, light skin versus dark skin, um, lighter skin blacks, black females in particular, uh, wearing contacts, colored contacts, which was something that I had experienced with girls that I knew in high school and also in college, um, dealt with hair politics: good hair, bad hair. Um, good hair being straight, mm-hmm. and you know, it, 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 it. He was trying to cram a lot in the film. It's an import, mm-hmm. It's an important film to watch, and I'm going to do something that's a clear contradiction. But you'll see why at, once I'm finished. He's telling too much story, so at parts, it's difficult to follow. Things are left underdeveloped, Mm. but this was a time where, and it still exists, but this was a time in the early Renaissance of late eighties, nineties, black cinema, where Spike wasn't guaranteed to get another shot at making a movie.
0: Mm. So he's leaving it all out in the field. He's
1: leaving it all out, and you, mm. you know, and I, I can't, I can't, I can't knock that. Um, but again, it doesn't. For me, it doesn't yeah. hold up yeah. over time. And in the previous episode of Snobs on Film, you know, I really waxed poetic over how "Do the Right Thing" captured that 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 time. It just it was a movie that was made and released at the right time, even though he was telling a lot of story in that too, right? Yeah, um, but it's but here it you're right right it's timeless and you know in school days it just doesn't have that sense of timelessness uh for me mm-hmm. but the soundtrack is gorgeous i mean it's just gorgeous i think it's his, i think it's his best soundtrack um to any of his movies that he's done um side note she's got to have it it's more of a score <laughs> uh, that's beautiful also but you know, on this, there was, there's The Butt by E.U., Go-Go, go Music, not known too much outside of Metro DC area. Um, went number one at the time. Um, beautiful song by Phyllis Hyman called B1, a sleeper song for her. Um, two beautiful arrangements of a song called One Little Acorn, uh, the first being played by Terrence Blanchard on trumpet accompanied by Kenny Barron, um, the master of piano. Uh, and also a solo version of little a- One Little Acorn um, mm. Piano by uh, Kenny Barron um, There's a, uh, uh, a Negro spiritual That opens the film called I'm Building Me a Home uh, I believe that's the Morehouse Choir that sings that um, Tisha Campbell, Jasmine Guy, and I forget the third actress mm. uh, Do a song called I Don't Want to Be Alone Tonight Good and Bad Hair Good and bad hair. This is another thing where Spike, uh, knowing that he was telling so much story, tried to abstract it, conflate it even in a musical number in the in maybe the first third of the film between mm. the um, uh, the light-skinned females and uh, the dark-skinned females, and it's a song called "Good and Bad Hair," and it's done in a, you know in like a beauty shop setting in the film. Um, yeah, I, I mean I literally listened to this album several times, you know, during during any given year. And I've done this for the last literally the last thirty one years. But the mm. film the last time that I saw, I think I've only seen it twice.
0: Hmm. Hmm.
2: Interesting. It's interesting how a hmm. movie can on one one hand a film can capture something that you can digest and then not need to revisit. Then on the other hand a film can capture something that you feel like you need to revisit every once in a while that's interesting how if you look at that you know uh school days versus do the right mm-hmm. thing um somebody could probably do a, a dissertation on that
1: mm-hmm. but you all had a, <laughs> had, a, had a had a had a significant reaction when I
2: said it yeah cause I, I, haven't, I haven't watched school days in forever and to be fair school days isn't as readily available as far as you know, it's not something that pops up on television. Um, I think you know, Do the Right Thing or Malcolm X or some of his other films um, pop up more on television than, than do the right
0: thing. You may not rate it in your top three movies of Spike Lee. No, no, nah,
2: nah. I mean, it, I'm like Arthur, uh, it came out in what 80, 88, 87, was really so then. that preceded my college years. I wasn't in college then, so for me. It, I didn't have the um, I don't have the nostalgia mm-hmm. as far as like w- when I first saw it I didn't connect to it in the way that maybe Arthur mm-hmm. did because he was a couple mm-hmm. years older than me but looking back now you know if I, when I did eventually see it because I don't think I saw it in the theaters I was too young it was rated, yeah, R, it was right? rated R yeah so, it was rated R yes it was so when I was uh, I, I don't think I saw it until I was in uh-huh. college and then of course I could relate to it a little uh-huh. bit better um, yeah for me it but was... it's still I agree with your, with your with your you know um breakdown of it in the sense that yeah, I saw it but I don't feel the need to re-see it or see it again. Does school days you think work better as a series of vignettes, as vignettes about college life? You mean like as, as, as opposed a, to something like a bonus or something as, like as, that? As, well as opposed to Clocker's, which to me works better as a full compelling narrative, uh, you know, from start to finish. You know, I think so. That's a good point. Lame. It
1: would be interesting if if School Days was the Netflix show as opposed to She's got a Habit. I mean, there's a lot of information to mine. In, I think in, that in was storyline. You didn't have a
2: different world. I think I think a different world became that in some aspects. It became the rated PG version, um, the PG culturally diverse version of School mm. Days. Um, the very PG Mm -hmm. version, the Cosby version. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You you can't say, actually, you can't say Cosby and PG anymore. So, (laughs) you know what I'm saying, though? (laughs) (laughs) That analogy is not the same anymore. But, you know, back, you know, go just go back like 10 years ago. If I would have said the Cosby version or something, you would have said rated G or PG at the Mm -hmm. most um, version. So, yeah, it was like that that version of school days. But if it weren't for that, yeah, I think that would make a much better or more compelling TV show, because um, those when you take a bunch of ideas, like you said, Spike had a lot he wanted to say yeah. at that time, and cramming yeah. in that movie, I think it got distilled into vignettes, you know. And he took and he came up with all these different vignettes and um, kind of combined them with a, a narrative. And maybe that narrative wasn't as compelling as something like Clockers or Malcolm mm-hmm. X or um, Mo Better. Yeah. Bring us home, man. So for my, I, I actually have two picks and i have one the first one is a song that i love and the movie that i can not, i not only can leave behind i've never even seen it and have no desire to see it um and that is the song is lose yourself um m lose yourself and the movie is eight mile mm-hmm. um the song lose yourself i think is i mean it's it's an anthem mm-hmm. you know it's a it's a, it's to me it's on the same level of Eye of the Tiger and some of those, you know, you put it on in the gym and you get hyped. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just, uh, you know, has one of his, some of his best lines and I think that he spit in there, you know, success is my only motherfucking option, failure is not. Um, You know, it just, to me, it's almost as if I didn't need to see the movie. Um, I really didn't have an urge to see this film and I remember when it dropped, I didn't get a lot of, you know, people coming up like, oh man, the movie was great, you gotta see it. And this was at the height of his fame, I Mm -hmm. think, when that movie came out. Um, but it wasn't. It didn't like you know rock the um, uh, the summer. though I think it came out in the summer. But it wasn't like that. You know that one film that you had to see. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just I never felt the urge to see it. And this song though was just so powerful to me at the time. Um, and if I felt like man I got so much out of that song, I was good. Um, I didn't really need anything else. And I still listen to that song to this day. You know I listen to it sometimes at the gym or. Um, whenever i hear it on um xm you know i turn it up um i think it's 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 a great movie song but for some reason it never compelled me to go watch this film so i don't know if you guys have seen eight mile but i've never seen it to this day
0: i saw that in the cinema
2: what did you think i imagine this i imagine this song was at the climactic moment of the movie right
0: Mm, no idea (laughs) i can't remember (laughs) <laughs> damn, <laughs> damn. <laughs> but yeah I mean you know I think it's important um, it taught a lot of people about cypher culture and freestyles and, and hip hop I think it was a lot of people's first introduction to that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know it's a coming of age story that's um, replicated in many other films before that
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah he was at the height of that. Was, yeah, he was at his peak at that moment um, and I think <laughs> it's funny man because I've never seen the film but one of my favorite parts about the movie is it was referenced in another film and I can't remember it to save my life right now. But two of the characters were arguing over the Mackay Pfeiffer reference in that song in Lose Yourself and how it really doesn't make sense in the sense that he re- he's referring to Mackay Pfeiffer as if Mackay Pfeiffer wasn't the actor in the movie. Mm-hmm. But and they are they're arguing back and forth and huh. I can't remember what comedy that was in, but that almost made me want to <laughs> watch the film more so than Lose Yourself, but not enough. <laughs> Um, okay, so that was that was my first pick. Um so the second pick is actually a full soundtrack. (laughs) It's Parade and Under the Cherry Moon. Hmm. I didn't hate Under the Cherry Moon as much as most people did at that time. Like, you know, obviously it got panned by the critics. Um deservedly so in my in my opinion. Um, but I found some good things about that movie. I remember I went to see it in the theater. There was a lot of hype around that film because it was the file. It was the movie, you know, the first movie he did after Purple Rain, because um, it preceded. Um, I think the next year he did the Sign of the Times film, almost to like uh, cleanse the palate of everyone who had seen Under the Cherry Moon. Um, but I didn't hate it as much as everybody else did. But similar to Arthur's experience with um, uh, school days. It's not as if I was living. <laughs> it's not as if I was living on the French Riviera uh, at that point in time in my life and um, playing piano in a restaurant or whatever like Prince was doing and being a gigolo on the side. None of that happened to me. But I do that movie. I saw it, and it was you know at that moment in time. This was '86, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Prince was you know one of the, if not the biggest pop star on the planet. Um, so I saw the film, you know. Whatever, whatever, and I maybe I've seen it once or twice since then, um, but I've never felt the need to revisit that movie. The soundtrack, on the other hand, this album, um, when I I remember this this was the first album I bought with my own money, the mm. first Prince album I bought with my own money, mm. um, and went into the store and actually bought it. And I remember I was thrown off at first because I knew it had something to do with the film, but. Parade was on the. It said Parade instead of Under the Cherry Moon. Mm-hmm. I think it was on the side, written on the side. Um, and then I think underneath it, it had smaller print. You know, it's you know, it, it, it connected itself to the film. Um, but this this is a this is a perfect album. You know, start to finish. Um, there is absolutely nothing wrong with this album. It's a, you know, it's even for Prince, it was a bold album at the time. Um, and it's got you know, probably the most radio friendly song he's ever done in his career is on here. Um, which is Kiss, and then coupled with um, songs like uh, I Wonder You, which is one of my favorite Prince songs ever. Um, New Position, songs that, you know, if you're not a Prince head, you probably have no idea. You you probably never even heard of these tracks. Um, But this, you know, this soundtrack to this film, which I can't, you know, having only seen the movie a few times, I can't really remember how well the soundtrack was placed in the film, but I do think that If I had to make a choice, I would absolutely, without question, choose to take this soundtrack and leave the film behind.
1: Hmm. Well, you're not going to get much argument from me. Um, You know, I'm more like I'm more inclined to go see that. Whereas Graffiti Bridge, for example, I'm still (laughs) trying to not I'm
2: still trying to unsee that movie. (laughs) Can't wait. Can't wait to season two.
0: (laughs)
1: And this is a full lid on season one of the Music Snobs and Snobs on Film. Thank you for supporting us. Again, we will return early 2020 uh, and maybe have a few gems dropped along the way. Take care, everybody.
2: I feel the same way about um, Ray Parker Jr. Ghostbusters. <laughs> Listen, when that that song, let's—I mean, snobs or whatever. Let's be real. That song is a prime example of a of a, of a music of a song and the movie being a perfect match for each other. Oh hell um, yeah! So yeah, I I didn't rock that back in the day on its own, but whenever it came on in the film in the beginning of that movie, it was like yeah, Ghostbusters, you know. <laughs>
0: So neither of you are going to cut for Ghostbusters 2, Bobby Brown's On Our Own. Hey, Bobby Brown's On Our Own,
2: great track to a movie that didn't live up to that song.
0: Yeah, never saw it. Oh, God.